Well, good morning. Good to be back with you today. And my thanks to Ken Samples for uh, helping us consider the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus last Sunday as we kicked off this new series, Common Questions About Jesus. Um, and I hope he answered some of your common questions about the reality of Easter and the resurrection of Jesus. Um, my son and I uh, had a great time in Philadelphia last week at the Rock Climbing Collegiate National Championship. And for those that are interested, he came in 27th, um, which wasn't as good as we had hoped. He got knocked out in the qualifying round, but, um, but he, he still climbed really hard, and, um, and I'm definitely proud of him just making it to nationals. And we, we had a great time, just the two of us together, during that trip. Uh, you know, um, every child grows up believing in imaginary characters. Um, whether characters associated with certain holidays or cartoon characters or superheroes, uh, childhood is filled with imaginary people. Um, and as adults, we don't get too worried when kids believe in imaginary characters because that's part of, of childhood. That's part of being a kid. But we start to worry when we meet adults who believe in imaginary characters, um, because that seems unnatural and unhealthy. It seems like something that you should outgrow when you move from childhood to adulthood. Well, through the years, there have been some people who have suggested that Jesus is no more than an imaginary character. These people say that believing in Jesus is like believing in Elsa from Frozen, or believing in, super, uh, in Superman or Batman. For example, John Murray, a former president of the organization American Atheists, once said, there was no such person in the history of the world as Jesus Christ. There was no historical living, breathing human being by that name ever. Now, back in the 19th century, a uh, German historian named Bruno Bauer was the first to suggest this idea that Jesus never actually existed, that believing in him was believing in an imaginary character. And um, although Bauer's arguments never gained much acceptance, I'm guessing that probably 99% of you here today have never heard of Bruno Bauer. Um, one of Bauer's most famous students that you've all heard of was persuaded by his arguments. And that student of Bauer was Karl Marx, the founder of Marxism. And, and ever since then, it's been common for those who follow Marxist ideologies, for many of them to deny that Jesus ever actually existed. Now, before we consider some of the evidence for the existence of Jesus for ourselves today, I need to tell you that this idea that, the, that Jesus never really existed is actually a, a very small minority view. That The vast majority of historians, whatever their faith commitment or lack of faith commitment, the vast majority believe that Jesus of Nazareth actually existed. It's a very small group of atheist thinkers that deny that Jesus ever existed in the first place and suggest that believing in him is like believing in an imaginary character. Um, but let's consider the evidence for ourselves. Let's not be afraid of the question. Let's look at the question and consider some of the evidence for ourselves. Uh, as I said, last week we started this, this series, Common Questions About Jesus, and we're answering, answering some of the most basic questions people have about Jesus in our world. So today we're going to ask the question, did he really exist in the first place? And I'm going to present to you four ancient historical testimonies 
that are outside of the Bible about the existence of Jesus. Now, this is probably the only message I will ever give at Glenkirk that doesn't use the Bible as its source. So if this is your first time, this is a deviation from what I typically would do. None of these four ancient writers that I'm going to share with you today were Christians. And yet, all four of them talk about Jesus in their writings. Now, before we meet these four people, and I I give you an introduction, let, let me mention something about how modern historians study ancient history, because it's very different than studying modern day history. Um, reconstructing ancient history is a very challenging task if for no other reason because the vast majority of what was written in the ancient world is gone, no longer exists. You see, back then, most people wrote down what happened in the ancient world on papyrus, a kind of paper made from papyrus reeds. And unless papyrus is carefully preserved, Over time, it turns to dust. And time is what separates us from the ancient world. So so some historians have estimated that as much as 95% of what was written in the ancient world is gone, turned to dust over time. And so historians are stuck with reconstructing ancient history using only about 5% of the data. Now, if that sounds like a hopeless task, it's not. Most historians believe that their reconstructions of the ancient world, whether it's in ancient Greece or Rome or India or China um, or or Egypt or whatever, um, provide a basic reliable framework for what actually happened. And of course, every time archaeologists make a new discovery of a site or an engraving or a piece of pottery or a preserved um, papyrus, Historians evaluate what they've reconstructed using that 5% or so of the data in light of that new discovery and adjust their views accordingly. So good historians work with what they have while keeping an open mind to the occasional new discovery that's made. It's pretty good advice for us as well. So with that in mind, let's meet our four ancient um, um, sources that I'm going to look at today. First, we're going to meet a guy named Suetonius. Um, Suetonius was born about 40 years after Jesus, um, about um, 69 AD, and, and he died in 120 AD or so. And he was a Roman lawyer who was the personal assistant for a Roman emperor named Hadrian. Suetonius wrote a series of biographies about the first 12 Roman emperors called the Lives of the Caesars. Next, we're going to meet a guy named Pliny the Younger. Pliny the Younger. And no, I am not talking about the triple IPA beer called Pliny the Younger that's brewed by Russian River uh, Brewing Company. I'm talking about the Roman author that beer is named after. Um, Pliny the Younger was a Roman um, senator who, in the late first century, was appointed as a governor of Asia Minor, which is in modern-day Turkey. And today we'll be looking at a quote from one of Pliny the Younger's letters. Third, we'll meet a guy named Tacitus. Tacitus, um, in the late first century, wrote Annals of Imperial Rome, um, and it provides the most detailed historical account of this time period of Roman history. And today we'll be looking at a paragraph about Jesus from his Annals. And then finally, we'll be meeting a, a man named Flavius Josephus. 
Um, Josephus was Jewish, not Roman, like the other three um, sources that we're going to look at. And uh, he was born just a few years after the death of Jesus. And he worked as the Roman governor's um, government's uh, resident Jewish historian. And we'll be looking at a quote about Jesus from his writing, Jewish Antiquities. Um, Now, none of these four people were Christians. Um, Josephus was fairly neutral about Christianity. But our three Roman authors, Suetonius, Pliny, and Tacitus, were hostile to Christianity. None of these writers had any reason to present Jesus in a positive light, or Christianity in a positive light. All four of them lived within the same generation as those who knew Jesus personally. So what can we learn about Jesus from these four sources? And by the way, um, if you have a Glenkirk Church app, all of the the quotes that I'm going to give and the summaries I'm going to give are on that church app um, under sermon notes or message notes. And so don't feel like you have to write everything down. If if you're you're so inclined, you can just go to the app. So let's start with Suetonius. Um, In his Lives of the Caesars, Suetonius devotes a section to the Roman emperor Claudius who is the third of the 12 Roman emperors that he talks about. And Claudius reigned from about 41 to 54 AD. So here's what Suetonius says. Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome since they were always making disturbances because of the instigator, Crestus. Because of the instigator, Crestus. There's broad agreement among historians that Crestus is a Latin misspelling of the Greek word Christos, which is the Greek word for Christ or Messiah. And Christus here is certainly a reference to Jesus. Suetonius is calling Jesus or Christus an instigator, which is a Latin word for a political troublemaker who's a threat to the peace of the Roman Empire. Apparently, the Jewish people living in the city of Rome, were disturbing the peace because of disagreements with one another over Crestus, over Jesus. And so Claudius, to solve that problem, just kicked out all the Jewish people from Rome. Problem solved. Now, through other writings, and actually through an inscription that archaeologists have discovered, um, they verified that Claudius actually did this in 49 AD. This is also mentioned in the book of Acts, in the Bible, in Acts chapter 18. Suetonius seems to be saying that that Claudius kicked out all the Jewish people because of their violent disagreements with one another over whether Jesus was the Messiah or not. So what can we conclude from this brief reference in Suetonius? We conclude this. Some Jewish people believed Jesus was the Messiah, and the Romans saw Jesus as a threat to the Roman Empire. According to the Bible's book of Acts, The early church was comprised almost exclusively of Jewish people for the first couple of decades. So it makes sense that there would be significant debate among Jewish people about whether Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ, or not. And we'll actually talk about the evidence of whether Jesus fulfills the criteria to be the Jewish Messiah in two weeks in this series when we ask, was Jesus the Jewish Messiah? 
And we also find here that the official Roman perception of Jesus is that he was a troublemaker, an instigator, a threat to the law and order of the Roman government. It's also interesting to notice from Suetonius that that if Jesus died outside of Jerusalem sometime around um, um, 33 AD, as the New Testament indicates, that Suetonius indicates that a sizable Christian community had developed within the city of Rome just about 15 years after that. So that's the testimony of Suetonius. So now let's look at Pliny the Younger and what he says about Jesus. Pliny's testimony comes from a letter that he wrote, the Roman emperor at the time named Trajan. And let me give you the context for for Pliny's letter. Pliny was the governor, um, as I mentioned, of Asia Minor, which was modern-day Turkey within the Roman Empire. And at this time, the official Roman position is that Christianity was an illegal religion. It was illegal to be a Christian. And so Pliny is writing this letter to the Roman emperor about what to do with people who he has discovered to be Christians. He wants guidance on how to punish these people, how to interrogate them who are discovered to be Christians. And he starts out by describing what he's already been doing with people he discovers to be Christians. So let's look at what he says in this section of his letter. Pliny says, I decided to dismiss any who decided that they are or ever have been Christians when they repeated after me a formula invoking the gods and made offerings of wine and incense to your image, to the emperor's image. I understand that no one who is really a Christian could be made to do these things. Other people whose names were given to me by an informer first said that they were Christians and then denied it. They said they had stopped being Christians two or more years ago, some more than 20. They all venerated your image, that's the emperor's image, and the images of the gods as the others did, and reviled or blasphemed Christ. They also maintained that the sum total of their guilt and error was no more than the following. They had met regularly before dawn on a predetermined day and sung antiphonally a hymn to Christ as if to a god. They also took an oath, not for any crime, but to keep from theft, robbery, and adultery, not to break any promise, and not to withhold a deposit when reclaimed. Now, there's a lot that we could say. There's so much interesting in this letter. But let's just focus on what we learn about Jesus here. Early Christians worshipped Jesus, in, in Pliny's word, as a god, and saw allegiance to other gods as a betrayal of Jesus. This letter reveals just how quickly early Christians began worshiping Jesus. Now, it's not unusual throughout history for people to worship someone who was a human being after centuries. Uh, According to an Oxford historian named Sherwin White, it usually takes several generations sometimes several centuries, before people who were mere humans to begin to be worshipped as a god. But we shouldn't expect to find people worshipping Jesus, according to Sherwin-White, if following this pattern, until the third or fourth century at the earliest. And yet here we find evidence of early Christians gathering and singing hymns to Jesus as to a god 
in the late first century, not long after the death of Jesus. Sherwin White says that this is very significant because it's a deviation from the usual historical pattern that we see. We'll talk more about this in three weeks when we ask the question, was Jesus really God or not? But for now, we notice that the early Christians worshipped Jesus as God very early on. And we also see in Pliny's letter that worship of Jesus was exclusive. That true Christians couldn't be loyal to Jesus and also worship the Roman gods or worship the Roman emperor's image. There's a lot more we could say about this letter, but let's move on to Tacitus. Here's the testimony of Tacitus. And um, in this section of Tacitus's annals um, that we'll be looking at, he's describing a large fire that broke out in the city of Rome that burned down much of the city. Um, and the Roman emperor at this time was Nero, and many Romans suspected that Nero himself had ordered the fire to be lit. And because of those rumors, Nero was looking for a scapegoat, and so he blamed the fire on Christians, since most Romans already hated Christians. So in that context, let's look at what Tacitus says. He says, but neither human effort nor the emperor's generosity nor the placating of the gods, ended the scandalous belief that the fire had been ordered, presumably by Nero. Therefore, to put down the rumor, Nero substituted as culprits and punished, in most unusual ways, those hated for their shameful acts, whom the crowd call Christians. The founder of this name, Christ, had been executed in the reign of Tiberius by the procurator, Pontius Pilate. Suppressed for a time, the deadly superstition erupted again, not only in Judea, the origin of this, quote, evil, but also in the city, presumably the city of Rome, where all things horrible and shameful from everywhere come together and become popular. Therefore, first those who admitted to it were arrested, and then on their information, a very large multitude was convicted, not so much for the crime of arson, as for hatred for the human race. Tacitus here gives us some very precise information about Jesus. He says that Jesus was executed by the Roman governor Pilate during the reign of Tiberius Caesar, the second Roman emperor, which is consistent with what the New Testament says. He says that the early Christian movement started on the outskirts of the Roman Empire in Judea, which is where Jerusalem is, but that it eventually spread to the city of Rome itself, consistent with the New Testament. And finally, we learn that what Tacitus calls a, quote, deadly superstition erupted after the death of Jesus. Now, it's possible that Tacitus is just describing the Christian faith in general here, but I think it's likely he's referring to the claim that Jesus rose from the dead and was seen by his disciples three days later. And that's what he's calling this deadly superstition. So what can we conclude from the testimony of Tacitus? Jesus was from Judea, crucified by Pontius Pilate, and some sort of, quote, deadly superstition circulated after his death. Tacitus provides us with a basic outline of the life and death of Jesus that is consistent with what the New Testament presents. And that brings us to Josephus, the final and fourth 
testimony that I want to share with you today. And Josephus's work is from Jewish Antiquities, which is his history of the Jewish people that he wrote for the Roman government. So let's look at what Josephus says. Around this same time lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed it is right to call him a man. For he was a worker of amazing deeds and a teacher of people who accept the truth with pleasure. He won over many Jews and many Greeks. He was the Messiah. Pilate, when he heard him accused by leading men among us, condemned him to the cross. But those who first loved him did not cease. For on the third day he appeared to them alive again, because the divine prophets had prophesied these and a myriad of other things about him. To this day, the tribe of Christians named after him has not disappeared. Now, this paragraph from Antiquities is very controversial, as you can imagine, because some people say Josephus never could have written this because it sounds so Christian, and Josephus wasn't a Christian. But this paragraph is found in every single ancient Greek copy of Josephus that archaeologists have discovered. And so to claim it wasn't written by him is simply speculative, wishful thinking. So going with the text as we have it, we learn a bit more about Jesus' life. We learn that Jesus was viewed as a miracle worker, that he was a popular teacher consistent with the New Testament. And when he calls Jesus the Messiah, Josephus is probably not confessing his own belief that Jesus was the Messiah. Later in Antiquities, he actually states his belief that one of the Roman emperors fulfills the expectations of Messiah. But he's remarking that many believed that Jesus was the Messiah. We also learn that Jesus was crucified by the Roman governor Pilate, but his arrest was instigated by who he calls leading men among his own people, the religious leaders, again, consistent with the New Testament. And finally, we learn here that Jesus' followers claim to have seen Jesus alive again three years after, or three days after his death. And so from Josephus, we learn that the story of the resurrection of Jesus didn't evolve over hundreds of years. Instead, belief in the resurrection of Jesus was directly linked to the circumstances surrounding his death. So what can we conclude from the testimony of Josephus? Jesus was a miracle worker and a teacher, believed to be the Messiah, crucified by Pilate, and seen alive by his followers three days later. So what are we to make of these four ancient testimonies? Well, from these four ancient sources, we can conclude that belief in the historical existence of Jesus rests on rock-solid historical ground. We can be confident that Jesus of Nazareth really existed, that he lived in the region of Judea, that he was a popular teacher, a miracle worker even, that he was considered a troublemaker by the Roman government. And that in conjunction with leading men among the the Jewish religious leaders, that Jesus was executed by the Romans. We also learn that Jesus was believed to be alive again, seen alive again by his disciples three days after his death. And within just a couple of years, people were worshiping Jesus as God. And within a few years, this belief spread from the outskirts of the Roman Empire in Judea 
all the way to the heart of the empire in the city of Rome itself. The historical evidence for the existence of Jesus is compelling, more compelling than virtually any other major religious leader from the ancient world. Now, let me share with you one more, I think, really important observation. If you look at this timeline of the death of Jesus dated somewhere around 33 AD or so, you can see where the writings of Josephus, Pliny, Tacitus, and Suetonius all fall on that timeline. Now, from our perspective, uh, in terms of, of modern history, these guys seem a little late to the game and a little far removed from the events of Jesus's life, have a lot of credibility. But from the perspective of the ancient historian, who are working with only 5% of the data, this is compelling, compelling evidence. If you compare these four testimonies with those of other ancient historical figures like Socrates or or Buddha or even some of the Roman emperors, this is compelling evidence. But here's the kicker. With the exception of Josephus, all the books of the New Testament were written earlier than these four ancient sources. The Apostle Paul's writings in the New Testament were written um, roughly between 49 and 62 A.D., the earliest writings of the New Testament. And historians debate exactly when the the four Gospels were written that give the account of Jesus' life. And so on the timeline, I give them as broad a, um, a, a possible window for them to be written, even if they were written as late as 80 or 90 A.D., which I think is very late for Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, that still places them closer to the events than Suetonius, Tacitus, and Pliny. And the later letters in the book of Revelation in the New Testament are all placed around 85 to 90 AD. According to Professor N.T. Wright, the historian views the events or writings closest to the events they describe as the most promising sources for historical bedrock. Now, none of the Jewish or Greco-Roman sources we looked at were Christian sources, which perhaps gives them some greater credibility in the eyes of some people. But the 27 books of the New Testament, although they're written from the perspective of faith, are closer to the events of Jesus' life. And here's what's remarkable, how much all of these sources agree with each other. Now, if you want to study this further, I drew a lot of my research today from a book called Jesus Outside the New Testament, Jesus Outside the New Testament by a historian named Robert Van Voorst, Robert Van Voorst. And you can also, as I said, find all these quotes and these ancient writers and summaries and the sermon notes on the app, and you can look up these sources yourself. They're all open sourced. Now, some of you might find this fascinating and wish I kept going, and for others of you, I have bored you to death today, and I apologize. Um... But I want to remind us that Glenkirk doesn't exist simply to persuade people that Jesus existed. It's one thing to know facts about someone. It's another thing to know someone. When you know a person, facts and evidence are less important than your relationship with that person. And Christians are people who believe that they have come into a relationship with Jesus. Not an imaginary Jesus or make-believe person like Superman or Iron Man. Not a mythological Jesus who took centuries to develop. 
but the Jesus of history. The same Jesus who walked the dusty streets of Jerusalem, who performed miracles, taught the Sermon on the Mount. The same Jesus who was crucified by the Romans. The same Jesus who was seen alive by his closest followers three days later. As historian N.T. Wright says, the Jesus I know in prayer is the same Jesus I meet in the historical evidence. So as compelling and as strong as the historical evidence for the existence of Jesus is, we have stopped short as a church if we haven't tried to introduce people to a relationship with this Jesus. And so it's only appropriate that this message would be the same, take place on the same Sunday that we celebrate the Lord's Supper, communion, where we believe Jesus is our host and we are his guests. And through eating bread and drinking from the cup, we experience his presence, not in a magical, mystical kind of way, but a link to the actual historical Jesus who we read about in the New Testament, who most of the world rejected, and who conquered death. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time, Lord. And as we've looked at these quotes from other sources, Father, they remind us that we shouldn't be afraid of our questions. That we shouldn't be afraid, Lord, to to look honestly when honest questions are asked. Because all truth is ultimately your truth. So, Father, prepare our hearts to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, to receive the sacrament of the bread and the cup of communion, that we might not only know in our minds, but that we would experience your presence in our hearts. We pray these things in Christ's name.